0: Here we go. Is that better? Thank you. Okay. First one. I am from Singapore. I feel very happy to see you at China Grove. Today is the first day of the retreat, and my experience is cleaning my bowels three times a day and having two naps even though I slept well last night, my bowel movement is not very good recently and I'm surprised it went well here. It's because I teach you how to let go (laughs) and not attach and cling on to things. I look forward to the rest of the retreat and many new experiences as this is my first visit to Jhana Grove. Thank you. You Sometimes even with one's digestion, sometimes just learning how to relax and make peace. Often that's one of the most wonderful things to actually, to have a healthy body. And in many ways it works. And number two, I'm very proud of you that you had two naps today. (coughs) And you have another one soon. (laughs) I say that because the first days of a retreat, every one of you will be tired. It's what we call sleep deprivation. These days we don't know how to sleep well. We worry about too many things. So you may go into your bed, but you don't really sleep deeply or very peacefully. Many years ago, I was giving a talk at a a conference over in Sydney by an organization called ABCAP the Australian Association of Buddhist Counselors and Psychotherapists. They're basically sort of uh, psychologists. And one of them was telling me that how they had used a very simple um, meditation technique. They put it online to cure insomnia. And her website was called sleeplikeababy.com. And all it was was learning how to do a sweeping meditation of your body. You know, when you're in your bed, you know, before you go to sleep, instead of counting sheep or silly things like that, just feel your feet, learn how to relax them to the max, and keep going up your body, part by part, and relaxing it, feeling it. How tense is it? How can you relax it? The nice thing about mindfulness, it gives you the opportunity to get feedback. So, you know, you can see, if I do this, will my, say, legs get more relaxed? If I try something else, do they get more tense? You soon learn how to relax your body. And you got your whole whole body relaxing it to the max. But usually, if you try that when you're doing the, uh, the in your bed, you don't usually get that far. That you be legs, and maybe no further. And you're so relaxed by that time, the whole body relaxes, you fall fast asleep. So that's a wonderful way of, like, curing insomnia, just with a bit of meditation. But later on, when you get a bit more energy on this retreat, Sometimes people find it difficult to go to sleep at night, they've got a bit too much energy. Those very same people, they find it so easy to go to sleep during the meditation. (laughs) So the solution is so simple, it's when you get to your room and you want to go to bed, have a sleep, go to sit on your bed and just to try and watch your breath. When you come in here, bring a pillow and try to go to sleep and then you'll be wide awake. <laughs> so I said the thing yesterday, it's what you're trying to do is the problem. Learn how to relax when you go to uh, bed tonight and just say body, you know, been working hard. Many of you come from overseas, still got some jet lag. There's somebody who just came, they came all the way from Czechoslovakia. I mean that's the other side of the world. So you must be totally jet-lagged for the moment. Surprise you! you're awake when I'm giving my talk. But anyway, afterwards, just when the question and answers is finished, go to bed and just relax in your bed. You don't have to get up at any time in the morning. Whenever you wake up, you wake up. Look after your body. That's one of the stories. I've only got a few questions here. There was this, again, this lady who came on the re- one of my retreats, an executive, so she didn't actually get to the retreat center until about midnight. So she missed the first talk, and in the morning, I told her, look, you're obviously very, very stressed out, you know, an executive, it's amazing you managed to get here at all. So I want you, as soon as the morning talk is over, to go to bed have a sleep, get up for lunch, after lunch go to bed, have a sleep and come out for the afternoon uh, meditation or sutra class and after that go to sleep. And she did that, she was very obedient, had a lot of faith and she did so much sleeping that first day. And in that retreat centre years ago you had like dormitories, so she was sharing a big room with four beds, and she told me at one of the interviews, she said that all of those other three ladies in her dormitory were just so angry at her that she was wasting the opportunity to have a retreat. All she would do is get out for breakfast, get out for lunch, and hardly anything else. And I told her, I says, that's not anger, that's jealousy they wish they had the, had the nerve to do what you're doing. And of course the first two or three days, all she did was catch up on her sleep deficit. And after those two or three days, you know, she felt she didn't need to have too many naps during the day. So she started meditating some more. So the first third of the retreat, she got nowhere, just got rested. And the second third of the retreat, She managed to catch up with everybody else. In the last three days she was one of the star meditators. She could meditate so well and so deeply. And so i used her as an example to everybody. Those being very sensitive, mindful and kind to your own body. Know what your body needs. And she wasn't sort of indulging. She was actually caring for her body. And because of that, the body relaxed and then she worked with her body rather than trying to train it and go against it. There's some wonderful meditations at the end of the retreat. So I really use those as a good example. That's if you feel sick or you feel tired or whatever it is, please care for your body. You got to work with your body, don't try and work against it. Is that okay? And I also should mention that I did mention what one lady, the last meditation she did, she goes really deep meditation. Often it's like that because people try so hard. They block the meditation actually producing results. And one example of that is Ananda. So I'm just going to very quickly teach the Ananda method of enlightenment. I think you all know the story that Ananda, he was the attendant of the Buddha for 25 years, listening to all of these amazing talks from the Buddha and being next to the Buddha when all his people came up and said they had this jhana, that, stream winning, once returning, non-returning, or claiming full enlightenment. So he saw everything that when the Buddha was about to pass away, Ananda wasn't enlightened yet. The Buddha said, oh, it will happen, don't worry, be confident, but even Ananda didn't really fully believe that. So, when the Buddha passed away, Ananda still wasn't enlightened. And still, you know, he would you know, talk to people, arrange things and stuff, but then the Sangha at the time decided they had to meet together to actually to discuss you know, what the Buddha actually taught. This is where those suttas came from, they had a big council to gather all the teachings, memorize them, and so the teachings of the Buddha could uh, be collected and maintained forever. So obviously they decided to allow all the enlightened beings, the Arahats into this meeting and they said they'd invited 500 Arahats, fully enlightened beings, into this meeting except for Ananda, who wasn't enlightened yet but he'd been with the Buddha for so long, had such a good memory, they decided they have to invite him to this meeting as well the 499 fully enlightened beings plus Ananda. Now imagine what that must have felt like. You're going to have a meeting with many of your friends and you're the only one (laughs) who's not enlightened yet. So Ananda just decided the night before the meeting to give it everything he had. What we call enlightenment or bust, he never slept that night. He meditated and meditated and meditated, and when the dawn came, he got nowhere. Still not enlightened. So, you know what he did? There's only another couple of hours to the meeting, so I'll take a nap. So, Ananda went back to his room and decided to lay down before the meeting started. And before his head hit the pillow, he became the 500th enlightened one. And to prove it to everybody else that he was deliberately late to the meeting. And they were waiting for him, he hadn't turned up, so they locked the door. And after they locked the door of this cave where they're having this meeting, then he came through the keyhole (laughs) and to make a point that he was now fully enlightened. And they all welcomed him. And the point of that story is it's called the Ananda method of enlightenment. Take a nap. And if you take it many times, it's probability theory. The more times you do that. and <laughs> I say that first of all because many of you do need to relax and rest. Anyway, the next, well, the next, that's a real question. In the Anapanasati Sutta, does attainment of the true way mean the noble eightfold path? That's a good question because sometimes people say that this is the only way, this is the the best way, but in all of those cases sometimes they are not translating perfectly. But however there is the one phrase mago nati Anya Dasanasa Wisudya as in the Dharmapada. This, the only way, there is no other for the purity of insight. And that I think it's verse 372 or something around there. And that is referring to the noble Eightfold Path. When it says the only way, there's so many references. The only way to enlightenment is the Eightfold Path. Not the sevenfold path, not the sixfold, fivefold, fourfold, threefold. There is no shortcut. I don't know why people these days love shortcuts. One of my stories is I remember going to give some teachings in Sri Lanka some years ago, and there was some teachings in uh, Kandy in the university there. I will never forget that because. Uh, they gave me the ceremony of leading me into the university behind an elephant. And I remember asking, do I have to stand so close to the elephant? And the back of the elephant, that is. And I was scared. If the elephant passed wind, I would pass out. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, on the way back, One of the the people who were driving me back from uh, Kandy to Colombo, he'd grown up in the area. And he was a native Sri Lankan. And so he said, oh, I know the shortcut. And the shortcut, everybody else who came with me returned. And we got back to Colombo four hours after everybody else. I thought I'd been kidnapped or something. (laughs) The so-called shortcut took four hours more than the direct route. And that's one of the problems I learned with shortcuts, shortcuts always take so much more time. And the same with the way to enlightenment, the way to wisdom, the way to, to peace and happiness. The shortcut is the Eightfold Path. So by the attainment of the True Way, Anapanasati Sutta, What it really means is like reaching the end of that true way. In other words, you know, the uh, experiences of wisdom which releases you from all attachments and all wanting. That's what it means. Ajahn, in the first tetrad, the first three tetrads of Anapanasati, translate the instructions with "as you breathe in and out." However, the last tetrad—oh, very good—use "in-breath meditation." Or I think there's no difference in Nepali. I wonder if this is because the breath is not the focus, yet it will be true in tetrad three, or also or. And because the wisdom practices are done retrospectively. In relation to the breath, could you please settle it for more? Yes, it is in the first part of the meditation. It's made quite clear that you're breathing in and breathing out. It's not as you breathe in and as you breathe out. It doesn't say that you have to watch the breath. You watch the aspect of the breath of whether it's long or short, and then you know to be able to. I see the whole of the breath. And then the fourth is to calm the breath, to notice not just the whole of the breath from beginning to end, but just how peaceful it becomes. You're still watching the breath, but different aspects of the breath. Since so I'm still watching the gentleman in front of me over here, but sometimes I can watch your your blanket and try to figure out how you can wear a blanket when it's already warm in here. (laughs) I'm used to cold weather. There's different things you can see in somebody. You're still watching that person, but what are you really focusing on? And then the second tetrad, you're actually focusing on the breath, yes, on that part of the breath, which is its delightful feature, its pity or its sukha. The joy in that. you're still watching the breath, but you're watching it as it appears, as and this is an important thing, as a uh, as a pleasure or pain, as a that part of it, the chitta uh, sankara part of it. Now, what it's actually happening here, I didn't explain that as well as I could, but in the first tetrad, you're watching the breath through the uh, through the bodily sensations, how the body experiences the breath. And the second tetrad, you're um, observing, mindful of the breath, as the mind experiences it. It's a, it's a um, chitta-sankhara which you're noticing. Still the breath, we are seeing a different aspect of it. This is a powerful thing to know that you have your six senses, so which one are you seeing the breath with? Seeing it, hearing it, smelling it, tasting it, touching it, feeling it, what are you doing? So that second tetrad is when you are knowing the breath, rather than feeling the breath. Seeing it mostly through a different sense becomes a chitta-sankara. And then the third uh, tetrad, you're still obviously breathing, but now you're focusing just on the, uh, the chitta itself. What is that mind? A lot of times people don't have an understanding of what the mind is. I say that carefully because one of the similes which may make this clearer is a simile of the tadpole and the frog, which I've often mentioned. Can a tadpole, born in water, lived in water all its life, know what water is? It can't know what water is, it's always there, but a tadpole one day becomes a frog when it becomes a frog, it can jump out of the water. And you can use some imagination. What would it be like for the frog when it jumps out of the water for the first time ever? Really weird. Never experienced anything like that before. And what it knows afterwards is that something which had always been there is now missing, and that is water. Only when the frog has jumped out of the water has it got the opportunity to know what water is and what dry land is. Only when the five senses have vanished can you really know what the mind is, the chitta is. And this is what happens. So this stage of the meditation, you can't feel the, you can if you really want to turn to the breath, but you let the breath disappear and you're experiencing these beautiful limiters and lights in the mind, if you see it through the visual sense. And the breath is basically gone. In meditation, they call it breath meditation, fine, but that breath is the main vehicle which takes you into the deeper meditations. I often give the simile that the people or gentlemen who arrived uh, this afternoon, coming from Czechoslovakia. I imagine you came in an aircraft, is that correct? Why didn't you land the aircraft here in the hall? The aircraft can only take you so far. And when the aircraft can take you no further, you get off the aircraft and you walk and get a taxi or a bus or something. And then the, the vehicle will take you into Jarnagro to the car park that's as far as the car can take you. And you get out of the car with your shoes on, and you maybe go to your hall, you check in first of all, but when you come in here, you go as far as your shoes can take you. Then you take your shoes off and you come in the hall. Each of these vehicles can only take you so far. Um, But the nice thing about the breath as a vehicle, it takes you to the disappearance of the five senses. And when those five senses disappear, then you can actually see the jitta, the mind. Does that make sense to you? Don't be afraid of senses disappearing. That's what this meditation is supposed to do. And one of the things which I discovered when I was a layperson person in the UK, I would go to any meditation retreat I could find because I didn't really have much choice in those days. I remember going to a Zen meditation retreat. I'd never done Zen meditation before and I was told we sat in a, in a corridor, it was an old shed, and we had to keep our eyes open when we were meditating and stare at a whitewashed wall. And so I'd done some meditation before, so I had some experience in breath meditation, but now we weren't supposed to watch our breath, we're just to stare at the wall. And eventually, something strange happened which was really very useful. I was mindful. I knew how to keep my mind still by this time, be in the present moment and have very few thoughts or no thoughts at all. So I was staring at this whitewashed wall, silent in the moment, and then my eyes were fully open, the wall disappeared, it vanished, I couldn't see any wall anymore. And what you were seeing, you were seeing nothing. What do you mean seeing nothing? What had happened is the sense of sight had turned off, even though my eyes were open. You might close your eyes now, you see the inside of your eyelids. But after a few seconds the sense of sight will just turn off. Just like a computer or your your phone, if you don't press any button you get the screensaver first of all, then after a, a certain time it will all go blank, it will turn off. That's how your brain works, how the senses work, there's no stimulation, there's no data for the sight to actually process, sight turns off. So you could experience, even though my eyes were open, you couldn't see anything. Because of the whitewashed wall and I was still not fantasizing or thinking, the sense of sight just turned off. I realize that what happened with the rest of your body. Hearing, you don't always hear things. Sometimes you have ambient noise, in other words it doesn't change and after a while you just can't hear it anymore. Smell, a lot of times the smell turns off because there's nothing much to smell. And taste, unless you're chewing a sweet or something in the meditation hall, you're nothing to taste, that turns off very quickly. One of the hardest of the five senses to turn off is your bodily feelings. But sometimes it happens, you're meditating here and you can't feel your hands. I remember just teaching in Singapore once and one of the people I taught came up to me, he was really concerned, he said, I was meditating, my hands disappeared. Well done. Well, is that supposed to happen? Yes, eventually your whole body disappears and then you really bliss out. So allow your body to vanish. The time in my body, I'm 71 years old now, and so my body is getting a bit achy, not as comfortable as it used to be. By the time we can really be rested, the time my body feels the best is when it disappears in meditation. So that's one of the reasons why when the five senses go, it's gorgeous. Please let that happen. And uh, please also, excuse me for saying about personal experiences, but because it's direct experience, that really meant something for me. And of course I can recall this so clearly because There's no word for this in English, but it's like a trauma, unforgettable experiences, but totally positive. And that was the time as a young monk in Thailand that I had typhus fever, scrub typhus. And apparently the health department there thought there was no scrub typhus in that part of Thailand. What was happening was the local community had immunity you know, over the generations. But the Western monks who came there, we all eventually, or well, most of us, got it. I remember getting that fever and being sent into hospital, you know, with very really high fever, and after a while they could not find what it was. So they just gave cocktails of uh, antibiotics. And I remember that very clearly, because this was in 1975 or something, around that time. I remember going in the monk's ward of Ubon Hospital. And Ubon was hospital in the Northeast. China was a third world country then, and this was the backwaters of the third world country. And the monk's ward, because we were supposed to be tough guys, they, they didn't give us much sort of TLC. I remember just the first night in hospital at 6 o'clock. They had one nurse at the front of the ward, and then when he went at 6 p.m., by 6.30, there was no one to replace him. And I asked one of the other monks, should we alert someone, the night nurse hasn't turned up? And he looked at me and said, what do you mean there is no night nurse? If anything goes wrong with your health in the middle of the night, that's just unlucky karma. We're there, just monks are really sick to look after ourselves during the night time. I never experienced anything like that. And I thought, take me home. <laughs> but as the days sort of went past and the fever didn't, get, didn't abate at all. It's after about three or four weeks in hospital that that's when I was so um, tired, no energy at all. I think probably in my whole life I've never been so depleted of energy. Just laying in your bed with these fevers and deciding that why not meditate? And by meditation, I did not cross my legs at all or sit up, I was lying prostrate on the bed. No, prostrate, you know, whatever it is anyway, sorry. I always say, please don't bow too much, guys, otherwise you may get what cancer? <laughs> so that's a silly joke. But anyway, so I was really tired and I decided to just let go, do some meditation, the posture was not important. And I got this incredibly deep meditation, Just I couldn't really believe it afterwards, when I came out of that meditation, I looked at my posture first of all, and I've never ever seen that posture in any book, you've seen people in hospitals I, I imagine, People are really sick, and the leg this way, leg that way, arm all over the place. But I do remember the difference. You know, having a fever and feeling zero energy almost, and then going to a deep meditation and feeling just so free. You know, from your body and the aches and the pains of that uh, disease. It was gorgeous because of the contrast. My body before the meditation, and the body in the meditation. So it's very beautiful to realize in this meditation the body vanishes. Wonderful. That make sense to you? Okay. Well, one day it'll happen and you understand. The wisdom practices are done retrospectively in relation to the breath. Yep. Yeah. The further wisdom practices—that's the last four. This was using the language of my training as a scientist. If you're doing an experiment, you get the data first of all, collect the data, and once you have good data to work with, then you can find out what it means. So it means you have this amazing data which you gather during your meditation. And things like the frog, being in a place where there's no water anymore and so that's weird. In those deep meditation your mind is too still to contemplate, to explore, but afterwards it leaves a very strong imprint in the mind, very easy to reflect what happened, what was going on these are almost like unforgettable experiences. So it's called, in part, Pacha Awakenayana. The reflecting on what has just happened, which you can almost bring up and it's like you're back in there but now you can understand it. The simile which I gave, I think I wrote about this in my book, one of the books I wrote. I've got to be careful with writing too many books because the Zen teachers would always tell me anyone who writes a book will have to spend the next seven lifetimes born as a donkey. I don't know, they didn't like books, I think. <laughs> well, this other Zen monk. he was really classic, I forget exactly what his name was. But he came from Japan, from one of the monasteries there to London, and I was a lay Buddhist. He could hardly speak any English at all. But after he toured uh, England and Scotland, then he came back and people asked him, he'd actually learned some English. And they asked him, what do you think of Buddhism in UK? And he answered so clearly in English, so eloquently, but so simply. The answer to the question, Buddhism in UK, was books, 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 too many, too many, too many, dustbin, dustbin, dustbin. (laughs) A really eloquent explanation. So that's one of the reasons why I think the Japanese said anyone who writes a book will get reborn as a donkey for the next seven lifetimes. So I've got many donkeys. If you believe that, <laughs> but you question that obviously, but it's giving people too many ideas rather than enough opportunities to practice, I think was what he meaning, was was meaning. So anyway, but once you have the data, then you can actually understand it explore it. What does it mean? And that is one of the reasons why once you have the data and also the mind which is freed from the five hindrances, those are the opportunities you can break through you know, to things like enlightenment. So that's one of the reasons why those last four uh, fields of exploration by Anicca. Do you know what Anicca means? Anicca means something which has always been there. It's now gone. It's not permanent. It does not mean rise and fall. It means something which has been here for all your life. You thought it, you didn't even notice it, and now it suddenly goes. It's anicca. I learned that again from the Pali for food. If someone brings food to the monastery, say every Monday, which they do here, some people are being bringing food to Bodhinyana Monastery every Tuesday for years. They say for about 35 years, and no, she has been bringing it for that time. Almost the only time she doesn't bring it is if she's really sick. So if she doesn't bring it, a regular supply of food, a regular supply of food is called Nietzsche food. The irregular supply is called anicha, food. So the anicha means something which is always there, is now gone. And that shocks you. You didn't realise that you didn't really know your body, because it's always, always been there for you. Once it vanishes, ooh, what's going on? Okay, Uh, my simple question, why do we chant? It is to give you a chance. Chance. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) I'm trying my best because a lot of the chants which we do have a very powerful meaning. I don't know if you noticed that uh, the bhikkhunis, the nuns, why there's so few of them, why they have to work so hard. It's because of the chanting we do. Have you (laughs) noticed that? Whatever living beings there may be, omitting nuns, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. <laughs> Listen to that chant. Just how it demeans. me. <laughs> no, but it's also the chant. It brings a, a bit of a break you know, for the, the meditation. Everybody comes together to do a bit of chanting. And quite frankly, when you do long retreats, It's very helpful if you try and keep silent to do a little bit of chanting just to keep your vocal cords sort of a little bit in practice. And there's some fantastic uh, teachings in the chants. And just some of the chants which you do, I don't know if you've the party ones obviously you don't know yet you know what it actually means. When you hear it in the Uh, in the original part, you understand it deeper, you've got some fantastic teachings in there. It used to be the case, we used to do a different type of metta meditation, of how to spread metta to all beings. And because I knew exactly what we were chanting, I had to ask a former abbot, can we please stop doing that chant? And the reason was, it was too powerful. I'd only get to you know, uh, spreading loving kindness and then uh, compassion, Karuna, then Mudita, then Upeka. I couldn't get past the compassion one because you were chanting, I knew exactly what it meant, and my mind just wanted to do it. So you just blissed out and you couldn't just sort of chant anymore. A few other times I remember doing, you know, the loving kindness chant which we do here in English, doing it in Pali and just getting so inspired. I was actually shouting the chant. This was my first couple of years as a monk and made her telling me to please chant quietly. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I had to chant that I could get so inspired, you know and that was a bit of a problem. But you also you learn a lot in the chanting. And you know, one of those things which we learn. It's called the Ratana Sutta, which we chant at people's houses to bless those houses. You know, part of those chants is uh, they just one line of it, Nibanti Dira Yatayang Padipo. And this is this is talking about the Arya Sangha. Nibanti Dira Yatayang Padipo. It means Nibbanti is the verb associated with Nibbana. It will Nibbana or they will Nibbana. Dira means for sure, Yuttayangpidipo, just as this oil lamp, flame goes out in Nibbanas. That was the meaning of the word Nibbana which even children would understand in the time of the Buddha it was used not only in a metaphysical sense, but in a natural sense. The flame has gone out, please light it again. That was called it So people would have a clear understanding of what that word meant. And so every time I just chant that, just, I always recall, yeah, this is what it means. So the chanting is, it has a lot of very deep, Beautiful teachings of the Buddha in it. Is that okay? Dear Ajahn, in meditation, after tranquilizing my breath, is there anything else I can do to encourage the arising of rapture? Be patient. I say be patient because the rapture comes when you are patient with it. There are two types of patience. One is not the real patience, that's waiting for something to happen in the future. You're not in the present moment. You're waiting, when's it going to happen, when's it going to happen, when's it going to happen? And of course, that is not being here. So when you are tranquilizing my breath or calming it down, when it becomes nice and peaceful. After a while there comes the appreciation of peace. As I think I mentioned this morning or yesterday, sometimes people wonder what the heck you're doing here, it's too peaceful, nothing's happening, it's boring. But also after a while, you really appreciate the peace in this retreat centre. Especially one of the things I like in the Australian forests we don't have things like cicadas making lots of noise. And all the animals over here in Australia, except for the kookaburra, which was laughing, but it only lasts twice a day in the morning and in the evening, they're very quiet. The kangaroos hardly make any noise at all. They're such silent, peaceful animals. And of course, I'm not sure if you had any walks yet and seen the joeys in the pouch or see the joeys come out. They're so cute and so quiet. That's a wonderful thing to actually to see in the peace of Jhana Grove. Just how delightful it can be. After a while you become an aficionado, someone who can really perceive the joy in peace. Other people may not be able to see that. The rapture just, no, you know, they think there it can't be any rapture in peace or in silence. Sometimes the most wonderful way to appreciate anything is in silence, because in silence you see much more, you can feel more deeply. One of the experiences of stories uh, which can explain this, as a young man, I thought it would, no, it's not that young, as a Buddhist young man, I thought it would be important to go to India and see the holy sites of Buddhism. And I remember, I also wanted to see the Himalaya mountains. I've seen photographs of them and they're just you know, amazing but I never did enough research, so I went there to India in the summertime of UK, which was the rainy season in India. So as soon as I got to India, all I saw were clouds on the northern horizon. And because it was a monsoon, it was not a good time to travel. I tried to get to Lumbini, but all the roads were out. I remember just going to the main tourist office in Delhi and finding, where's Kusinara? And no one knew. (laughs) So I only got to see Sanat and Bodh Gaya. I remember going to Bodh Gaya, that was, I think, 1970 or one or two or something. There was hardly anybody there. It's so different than today. There was no place I could stay over in Bodh Gaya. If I'd have known, there was a couple of temples that could have put me up, but I stayed in, in Gaya and got a little rickshaw to take me to Bodhgaya and want to take me back again afterwards. So hardly anybody there wander around wherever you wanted to. It was nice and peaceful. Uh, Buddhism hadn't really taken off in the rich West yet. So it was quiet. But I also remember just going up to Kathmandu, that's the place you're supposed to go, that's what they said, if you go on the, the trip from the Europe to India, and then I remember uh, talking to a few people in the youth hostel and they said there is a post office bus which took the mail to the most northern parts of Katman, uh, northern part of Nepal on the Chinese border. And the, it was illegal to go in the post office van but the guy who drove the post office van would let you go in there you know, for a few rupees you know, it's India, Nepal. So together with uh, this uh, American couple, I went into the bus and we, a beautiful little excursion up to the very north of Nepal, up to the uh, Tibetan border. And when he stopped for lunch, and he said we've got an hour, I already had some, something packed. So together, the American couple, we just walked up this little hill. When I got to the top of the hill, all the clouds parted and you could see the Himalaya mountains for the first time on that trip. You know what I did? I ran down to the vehicle because my camera was in the, in the car. It was almost as if it was that on purpose to teach me a lesson. It did teach me a lesson. So I grabbed my little camera and I, to get the picture of the Himalaya mountains I ran up again, and there's no exaggeration, just as I got to the top of the hill, all the clouds closed up. And this American couple said to me, where were you? It was a beautiful scene of the Himalaya mountains. <laughs> Stupid Englishman. I was just trying to grab a camera. Of course, you saw them later on in, in other visits over to, the, to that part of the world. But it taught me, beauty can never be captured. Truth can never be sort of pasted into your, your um, cache of wisdom. You will never ever get a certificate for enlightenment. This is not something you gain. It depends upon what you lose and how free you are. So there's lots. There's lots of stories about some teachers giving you certificates about how you progressed. And if, if you haven't heard this story before, this was a uh, a temple in Colombo in Sri Lanka. And we don't have any. Do we have any Sinhalese on this retreat. Oh, okay, we do. You know, a lot of Sri Lankans, they really, really, really want to at least become a soul one. That means a stream winner. So they always you know, come up to me and say, please help me, I want to, need to become a stream winner. You know, I've only got a few years left. They really sort of want to. So they had this retreat center where you could go for two months. And it was not just meditation, but it was also you know, teaching Dhamma. And if, whatever you, at the end of the retreat, the teachers in that retreat place would assess you, see how well you've done. And so we had this, uh, this old Buddhist woman from the north of the country, and she came to Colombo to see her children, and the children got a bit bored with her. What can we do as a gift for our mother, auntie, grandma, but also, you know, to get rid of her for a couple of weeks. And so they decided, you know, auntie, would you like to go on this retreat for two months? She said, yeah, okay. So they sponsored her to go on this retreat. And she knew a lot about the dharma, she was a good meditator. So at the end of the retreat, they gave her a test, they asked her about her meditation, and then the last day of the retreat, they gave out the certificates. Their certificates. They came up to her and said, Auntie, you've done really, really well. We've discussed your meditation and your understanding of Dharma. And we all agreed that you are a stream winner. Congratulations. And gave her the stream winning certificate. And at that, she got very angry. Is it? Why are you angry? It's a wonderful attainment, becoming a stream winner. It's a source of great joy. Why are you angry?" And she looked at them and said, "'You don't remember me, do you?' "'No, I was here about three or four years ago, "'and you gave me a non-returner certificate. (laughs) "'How come you've demoted me?' (laughs) So that's one of the reasons why an Ajahn Chah He would always say, we meditate to let go of things, not to attain things. Some Beautiful teachings. See how much can disappear rather than how much can add onto your burden of attainments. What attainments have you got? What certificates can you put on your wall? A BA, an MA? Uh, One of the certificates I really loved as a kid was 25 meters swimming. I could swim 25 meters as an 11-year-old. <laughs> PhDs, what does PhD mean? Pardon? PhD stands for permanent head damage. <laughs> uh, I got that from one of the, the, the brothers of one of the, uh, the nuns at Damasara. So instead of having certificates, to see how much can vanish and disappear. Okay, it's getting close to the time. What is your favourite sutta? Thank you for the retreat. Hey, it's not finished yet. The <laughs> retreat. What is my favourite sutta? It's so many of them are just really refined, but. It really depends upon you know, what we're discussing at the time. One of my favourite suttas will probably be the Mālāṇkhya-pūta Sutta. And the reason for that is for such a long time I've been uh, it's one of many we're sort of really trying to emphasise the necessity of the deep meditations you know, for gaining enlightenment. And that makes it very clear in the Malunkya-puta-sutta, where the Buddha said, no, without the experience of a jhana, there's no way you can know what the five higher fetters are which stop you becoming enlightened, let alone knowing how to abandon them. So it's, a, it's a very, the clearest time the Buddha actually mentioned the importance of the whole Eightfold Path. You can't just take any shortcuts, the whole Eightfold Path. So That's one of my favourite suttas. Any comments? Any other questions? I know one question, I don't need to be a mind reader. At the end of the first sutta class most people what they are thinking, they would like to ask is can we go now? <laughs> is that true? No? You want to stay? Okay. So, I just mentioned here reading minds. There was, this is one of the old Thai stories. The king, a long time ago, had a minister who was such a know it all. You know, always. When anybody said anything, this minister said, no, this is not right, this is right. and The problem was that most times this minister was right, and that made him very unpopular with all the other ministers serving this king. They all met together in secret and said, how can we get rid of this minister, this know-it-all? And they said, well, you know, He is so wise, but he's also so proud. I'm sure we can trick him into saying something which we know he cannot do. And that was their plan. So one of the next days, when they had a meeting with the king, they started praising, how lucky, you know, your royal highness is to have this minister helping you run your your country. He's so wise, he's so smart, He knows everything and all the time this minister was saying yes, yes, yes. He wasn't humble at all and then they said he probably even knows how to read our minds and he said yes. He slipped into the trap. How can you prove that you read somebody's mind correctly? Because the Lord agreed, even if he gets it right, that we are thinking about this, we'll say no, you were wrong. How can you prove it? So they asked this minister, if you can read our minds, what are we all thinking? And This minister said, easy. You're all thinking kind, loyal thoughts to his majesty. (laughs) (laughs) They had a choice. Telling the truth, that's not what they're thinking at all. Or saying, yeah, that's right. They're <laughs> keeping their job and their heads. <laughs> so maybe he couldn't read their minds, but he's incredibly wise. Have <laughs> anyone got a question they want to ask before we finish for the day? Okay. In the yeah. The one there says that John is an essay yeah, but he doesn't say that. Yeah. He doesn't, say that. he doesn't say that indeed. So there is nothing to actually to prove that they are necessary for stream winning. However, that when you understand that what happens in those jhanas is that things like your will can disappear, your body disappears, you can see things vanishing. And I can't. I cannot see and even some of the other monks which I've discussed this with, and we can't see that you can get that wisdom, you know, without those jhanas. And number two, it's only with the jhanas, this is from the Nalakapana Sutta, that the five hindrances disappear for long enough. It's never said specifically, but you can't see how it can happen without it. It certainly doesn't do uh, your attainment of stream winner, any harm to get a jhana, <laughs> so that's worthwhile doing. But one thing I would always also say is that the the getting on the path of being a stream winner can happen just slowly, just because your confidence or the experience which you've had. But actually, the attainment of being a stream winner that's an event, something happens to you. So brilliant sort of boost of many insights. So we say that because in the Vinaya, this is what the monks have to study. If someone comes up, especially a monk or a nana says they're a stream winner, we have to check them out is a list of questions we have to ask, because if they're faking it, it can be a peragic of offence you have to disrobe. And some of those questions which we ask someone who thinks they've attained something, is when? What day, what time, where? It's not something, oh, I've been practicing for years, it just happens. No, it's an event. So that's one of the reasons why you know, it's a powerful thing. Sometimes people ask me, How can you tell whether a person's enlightened? Sometimes you can't. But you can certainly tell when they're not enlightened. <laughs> That's easy to spot. Make any sense? So. Any more, any questions? It's just seven minutes past nine, I think it's a good time to call it a night. Those who want to meditate further, I would encourage you to go outside onto the stupas and meditate there, it's a full moon. Really the full moon is supposed to be tomorrow night but it's full enough and somehow or other it's inspiring. It's good weather, it's not too cold, so beautiful thing to do, to do some meditation outside under the moon. Make any sense? Okay. And if you don't want to meditate out, sorry, outside under the moon, you can always go into your room, which rhymes with moon, and dream of meditating under the moon. Okay, enough. Sadhu, sadhu, Sabu